Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Um, before I begin, I want to do as Native people do by um, acknowledging that we are in the traditional territories of the Tongva people, the Tongva Gabrielino people. This is their homeland that we are all guests to. And um, also, this is, it's kind of my hometown. I grew up in this, I was born and raised in Los Angeles. So um, even though I have lived away for a long time, this is still um, sort of my old stomping grounds. I grew up just a few miles up the road in Eagle Rock and then earlier in East LA. So um, um, I'm glad to be here. And um, I'm gonna just go ahead and uh, just launch into um, the subject of this book. So, um, so this book comes out of um, what scholars and activists call environmental justice. And environmental justice is not, uh, it's not always really understood by people. Um, what we mean when we, when we say environmental justice, sometimes it's um, taken to mean that it's justice for the environment, right? That, we're, that as activists, we are working to protect the environment and that's what's, what justice is. Um, and in some ways it can be thought of that, but when we talk about environmental justice, it really, um, it encompasses um, sort of a broad suite of things that include theory, it includes activism, it includes praxis, it includes um, academia. So it's, it's discourse and it's law and policy, it's all of these things. And so um, I, came, I came to this work because as uh, an undergrad in American Indian Studies, uh, I, was, I had come before that as, an, as a kind of in the streets activist working on native issues. I had always been drawn to environmental issues. And, um, and it's natural for those two kinds of topics to go together, especially when you're native and you're you know, looking at colonization and processes of dispossession and, and those kinds of things. So, um, so I'd encountered environmental justice courses as an undergrad um, in, in my major of American Indian Studies and, and it was really glaringly obvious how uh, the literature about environmental justice relative to Native peoples just wasn't there. I mean, it's, it's almost a non-existent body of literature that is um, explicitly about environmental justice relative to indigenous issues. Not that there's not a lot of material about environmentalism and how it relates to Native people, there, it's, there is. Um, but this very explicit uh, and specific um, terrain of environmental justice as it's conceived in policy and law relative to native people is, it's, is really not there. And so um, one of the things that I was uh, really drawn to and as I noticed through uh, my years studying it was 
was the concept of sacred sites and how Native American sacred sites are so endangered. And, um, and these, these fights to protect these sites, and, the, and it's really particular here to, to Southern California, um, is about, um, they've been fought as religious freedom battles um, for uh, under the American Indian Religious Freedom Act. And that, that law is really not adequate. It's a what they call a toothless law. It doesn't really provide um, protections for, uh, for places. It, pr it provides protection, limited protection for access to places, but not for the places themselves. So in other words, in a place like this where development is rampant, um, there really is no uh, very little kinds of legal frameworks that protect sites that are being swallowed up by development, um, which is pretty much the biggest issue that, that happens in Southern California, especially in the coastal areas. So, um, so environmental justice, um, my, my goal, as I was studying it, I came to see how um, the concept of environmental justice, which is it, it doesn't even become articulated until about the 1980s in the United States. And, and it starts in the Deep South in black communities protecting themselves from um, toxic waste facilities. Um, the first studies about environmental injustice came, came out of those communities. Uh, and and some, of the other, some of the other battles that were being fought even before that come out of California with some of the um, farm workers organizing like in the 60s under Cesar Chavez fighting to protect um, people against um, toxic insecticide use. Um, so, so that is part of these environmental justice um, background battles as well. But... Um, And so as the studies evolved through the 80s, because that's really when it begins, is in the 1980s, as these studies in evolve, they come to, to uh, suspect that the re so what, what, it, what it looks like is that people of color, communities of color, uh, suspect that they're being targeted for um, toxic development, you know, waste, uh, PCB incinerators, um, other kinds of um, heavy industrial um, kinds of facilities that expose communities disproportionately to um, these, these health-threatening kinds of processes. And these kinds of facilities in disproportionately affect these communities, poor and communities of color. And so, um, the studies deci decidedly looked at whether or not that was actually happening, and it turns out that the evidence was true. It, it showed that there was such a thing as this disproportionate targeting of um, communities of color. And, um, and so they came up with this concept called environmental racism. So it was, it was a form of racism that was... Um, in a way even predictable, that these communities uh, that were uh, not just poor but of color would um, be targeted at some point for some kinds of you know, noxious facilities. So, um, so it becomes uh, codified in 1992 under President Bill Clinton 
by an executive order called Executive Order 12898. And, and it defines what environmental justice is. And environmental justice then becomes part of the policy background for um, the Environmental Protection Agency. And the, the Environmental Protection Agency comes to be the, the really the, the cornerstone or the kind of the, the arbiter of environmental justice policy in the country. And then what, what few laws evolve to, um, to codify law uh, that protects communities of color. So um, it's a pretty complex terrain. But what I noticed in the literature was that it didn't, it, there, there was more and more kind of studies coming out that were case studies about how communities of color were protecting themselves, how they were using this, these executive order uh, and other policy statements to protect themselves. But the concept of environmental racism is, uh, I contend, is too limited for indigenous people because um, the definition of environmental um, justice uses language that talks about ethnic minorities. Ethnic minorities um, and that they shall not be treated um, like, I, I'd have to look at the language, but it's about, it collapses all communities of color into one category and um, without regard to race and um, national origin, this kinds of language. Um, but for Native people, Native people, um, and this is one of the, the core points that this book make, makes, is that Native people are not just ethnic minorities in this country. N Native people are nations, and they are subject to a completely different kind of legal regime, they have completely different histories, and they have completely different relationships to land because of their you know, long-standing tenure, obviously, in place. And their worldviews, their worldviews and how they relate to the land is completely different. And they have, um, the, you know, it, these different relationships construct this, um, what, what we would call sacred sites today that, are, that we're trying to, um, that they are working really hard to protect. And as I talk about in the book, Standing Rock, the no dapple fight that happened, you know, starting in 2016 was really um, a foundational example of how this plays out. Um, how uh, even though the Standing Rock Sioux are a federally recognized tribe with, um, with treaty protections, the land that that pipeline was going through was, uh, was outside reservation boundaries, even though it had treaty protections associated with it. Um, but that the law, even the laws to, that protect the treaty rights were not strong enough to protect that land from this um, pipeline from going through and under the lake, which was really the, um, the crux of the problem for the tribe. It was, it was about protecting the water. So, um, so, like thinking through like how is it, what does environmental justice mean for tribal people when, when, in, when tribes have reservations, okay, reservations are called trust lands. Those lands are protected by a completely different legal regime. And, um, and so those are battles that 
that enjoin self-determination. So those are sovereignty matters. And those are pretty strong laws and frameworks that they can use to protect because they have the say for what happens within those boundaries. It's outside the boundaries that are the problem. And um, even, even with, you know, again, these treaty um, relationships and these treaty protections, um, what does it mean to um, have those laws but st and still have these sites be violated in all kinds of different ways and not have those kinds of protections and how can they be protected? So, um, so these are the kinds of things that this book looks at. Um, what it does is it, it posits an indigenized view of environmental justice. It says that um, for indigenous peoples that that framework of environmental justice that collapses all ethnic minorities into one group is not enough. It doesn't work. And so, um, so, so it's the foundation, um, it's a conversation. This book is a conversation to, um, to take into government spaces, into activist spaces, to understand that, that um, there needs to be a different language and a different way of looking at what environmental justice is um, for indigenous peoples. So that's kind of the, the foundation of where, um, where this book uh, starts. And, um, and what it does, I'm gonna just kind of give you a chapter rundown. So it starts by looking at Standing Rock and um, talking about the, you know, how Standing Rock started, what it was all about, and, um, and why Standing Rock was an environmental injustice for the Standing Rock Sioux people. The second chapter goes into um, environmental justice theory and, and breaks it down to talk about what environmental injustice, uh, what the limitations are of environmental justice theory um, for indigenous peoples and why it doesn't work. Um, that goes into a conversation about genocide. So it's really having to look at the, uh, a deep history or take a deep look into the history of, um, of settler colonialism and settler colonialism as a process of genocide and settler colonialism as a process of environmental injustice. So, so environmental injustice for native people is not just about protecting themselves from toxic industry. It's about how um, genocide was enacted as this process that continually, um, continually reinscribes itself in the land and the politics um, and uh, in a way that con ongoingly dispossesses native people of their lands and and their nations. It's, it's pretty deep stuff. And um, so I do the best I can to, to make this understandable because it's pretty deep into law um, and history. But understanding settler colonialism as this system, as a, a structure that, that um, constructs the relationship between the federal government and tribal nations that is always, um, always working against them, always um, eliminating them on some level. 
which is a process of genocide. Okay, so then I look at the, pro the chapter, I mean the um, history of Western expansion and the Industrial Revolution and how, um, you know, we have this narrative in the United States, kind of the mainstream historical narrative is about, you know, progress, that the United States is, as this exceptional place was built on this um, uh, progress, technological uh, innovation, and, you know, we sort of conquered nature. And, and at the, the, the root of that is this worldview of, of conquering and, um, and domination. It's a, it's a worldview built on, on a paradigm of um, dominating of the natural world. And we can take that all the way back to Christianity and the book of Genesis and God's command to, you know, um, to basically uh, take over, right? I can't remember the, the word um, that, it, that it says to um, dominion, to take dominion over, over the animals and, and everything. So, so there's like this, it's deeply, deeply embedded into this Christian settler consciousness. So deconstructing that and understanding how we get to this point where we're at in, in our world now where we have nothing, where uh, we have relentless development, capitalist driven um, imperative based on limitless growth. And we know, we can see now the effects of that. We see the effects of um, limitless growth, especially based on a fossil fuel economy that is um, basically leading to the demise of, well, not just the human race, but um, we know now that 60% of um, life that was on the planet is gone. Right, just in the last 50 years. I guess the sixth mass extinction event is happening. 60% of the world's um, natural diversity is already gone. So it's a pretty stark and harsh reality. Um, okay, so um, I look at the history of um, food systems and water systems and, and American Indian health and how, how this process of genocide through land dispossession um, has left lasting, enduring impacts on Indian health um, through being cut off from their traditional foods. And, um, and the, the things that, and, and water too. So um, uh, all of these things, native life is impacted. There's no aspect of native life that's not impacted through this history of settler colonialism. And then I look at the history of the environmental movement. And this is a deep history um, looking at how the environmental movement comes out of the, um, the preservation and conservation movement and conserv early conservationists, um, including Ralph Waldo Emerson, but more particularly Henry David Thoreau and John Muir, and how this era, you know, in the starting in like the 1870s with the f um, forming of the the um, National Park Service and the creation of this con uh, conversation about conservation and wilderness, pres preservation of wilderness. This is a social construct. How we understand wilderness um, is is a social construct that becomes narrated in that era, in the, especially in the 1870s. And, um, and looking at the history of that and how, the, how this is deeply tied to the history of 
dispossession of indigenous people and their lands. So, um, so that implicates, um, you know, to talk about that is to talk about um, white supremacy. It's how white supremacy constructs um, American life in these ways that you don't normally think of. Um, and then I talk about the history of um, native activism and um, how it becomes, how it's always been tied to land, but specifically how um, with women and how, how women have always been central to those battles and those actions. Um, native women or native cultures, um, gender relationships have always been equitable. Um, at least pre-contact, they were inherently gender equitable societies, gender balanced. Native women never had to fight for rights in the same way that white women had to fight for rights in this country um, because, because there was by and large not a reality of, um, of exploitation, right? And of imbalance, of, um, of patriarchy. And so then, so there's, uh, that's, that's all tied to Standing Rock because Standing Rock, is, of course, is a women-led movement um, that comes out of, uh, comes on the heels of the Idle No More movement. Um, and, and it goes back to really the 1970s with um, the Indian self-determination movement uh, and how um, environmental activism was a uh, very intricate, integral part of that, um, that organizing back in those days, that activism. And uh, then, then there's a whole section on um, sacred sites and what sacred sites uh, and environmental justice have to do with each other and how we need to shift our uh, awareness and our narratives on it so that it, that can be um, worked into law and policy. And then the final chapter looks forward to, it, it takes a look at how um, productive partnerships are being formed and being used in different kinds of um, innovative land use arrangements in things like land conservancies and conservation easements and um, the way environmentalists are finally now working, not working against Indian country so much like they used to, but how um, they're finally starting to work more in partnership with Indian country. And that's a pretty new thing. And that doesn't really start until the 1990s, about like the late 1990s. Um, but the, go the, the premise is that, that in order to fight the kinds of battles that we have to fight against fossil, this fossil fuel economy, um, it's gotta be in, in solidarity between very diverse communities, communities that aren't necessarily used to working together um, because we're all fighting these battles and these are existential battles now. Um, those of us who are paying attention get it. And, um, and so that's, that's where this is all going. So I thought I'd uh, read from the section on um, the environmental movement, kind of the, some of the history of the environmental movement. Um, some of the more provocative sections of this book, but um, I, think I think I'll just start there. So this is a chapter called um, Not So Strange Bedfellows, Indian Country's Ambivalent Relationship with the Environmental Movement. And um, this section is called White Supremacy and the Seeds of the Environmental Movement. 
Few terms in American vernacular English can, ex can elicit the kind of emotionally charged response that white supremacy can, quote unquote, white supremacy. Americans like to think that since the civil rights era, we have achieved the post-racial merit, 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 meritocratic that word, <laughs> multicultural state, where colorblindness and equal opportunity prevails. Both liberals and conservatives like to think that racism is defined only by hostile behavior from which individuals can excuse themselves because they have friends, employees, perhaps an old lover or two who are people of color. In this way of thinking, white supremacy is an ideolo ideology restricted only to rogue, alt-right, neo-Nazis, or white nationalist fringe groups, and certainly not well-meaning everyday people, whether conservative or liberal. While white supremacy is most definitely at the root of these uh, regressive social movements, as a foundational worldview constructed by centuries of white European settlement of the United States, it is far broader than that. It is the thread from which the American social fabric is woven. A few decades of laws promoting racial justice have failed to unravel the systemic forms that white supremacy has taken, reflected by a range of social indicators from chronic wealth inequality to negative education out, educational outcomes to disproportionate rates of violence, um, police, sexual, and domestic violence, and incarceration in communities of color. Centuries of dehumanization of American Indians, African Americans, and ethnic minority others has left its mark on the American mind and, it, and, in, and in its institutions refusing to die. In Indian country, white supremacy was never limited to just racial inferiority. Since ideologies of religious and cultural inadequacy predated it, as is the pre, as the previous discussion on the foundations of federal Indian law, particularly the doctrine of Christian discovery revealed. So doctrine of Christian discovery is, um, anybody here ha heard of the doctrine of discovery, know what that is? So it's, it's the foundation of federal Indian law and it was articulated, um, first articulated by the Supreme Court in 1823. It's the first, in the first um, legal case ever argued before the Supreme Court. Um, and it's a time when the, the country is on its westward march. Um, it's uh, just before the Indian removal. Well, the removals are already, already happening. They're in Georgia, um, the Cherokees, the five civilized tribes, like the Cherokee, the Choctaw, Chickasaw um, Creek, and others are being pressured out of their lands um, by you know this fast-growing settler population, and um, and so there's pressure on the Supreme Court to articulate just what land title is in the United States, and so this uh, this particular case is an effort to 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 create that conversation and to codify it into law, and so. Um, the, the, the court decides, it, it articulates this concept called the doctrine of discovery, which basically means that um, conquest based on the religious superiority of white Europeans, they don't say white, so it's not about race, it's about religion at this point. It's about religious and cultural superiority of Europeans um, 
effectively granted the right of uh, Europeans to push Indians off their lands. It's this um, um, rationalization, this legal legitimization for um, colonial domination and forced removal. So this is, this is um, the concept that is at the foundation of federal Indian law today. It's still in existence. The entire foundation, legal foundation is still built on it. Um, so it's a problem. Okay, that native people were inferior to white Europeans was a given and widely accepted by the general public well before and after the 19th century. It was as true for John Muir as it was for his predecessor, Henry David Thoreau. Some writers claim that Muir's racist views, and Muir is like fam famously racist, um, that his racist views on Indians stemmed from his post-immigration childhood in Wisconsin's Winnebago Territory and became intensified after coming to California. When Muir arrived in San Francisco in 1868, California was engaged in an open campaign of extermination of California Indians, which he didn't seem to ever have actively opposed. Instrumental in the creation of Yosemite National Park, he supported the expulsion of the Yosemite Indians from their ancient home in the valley and journaled his experiences with, uh, experiences with and thoughts about the California Digger Indians, a derogatory term even then whom he found dirty, lazy, ugly, and altogether disappointing. Muir's apologists like to point out that his views about Indians evolved over time, especially after his travels to Alaska where he spent time among Tlingits and other Alaska and Pacific Northwest natives, gradually growing more favorable ideas about indigenous peoples. It's true that his opinions improved over time, but Muir never really fully shed his views of indigenous inferiority that were shaped by his religious upbringings. In Alaska natives, he may have been more able to see an, a noble culture that lived in harmony with its environment, but even in this case, he never transcended a deeply ingrained pattern of Christian paternalism that presupposed natives as culturally deficient and in need of Christian improvement. At a time of profound oppression of native people, Muir's evolution can be said to have risen to no more than old-fashioned European benevolent supremacy. The idea of wilderness as conceived by, by preservationists and conservationists was a white settler social construct. It imagined an unpeopled wild landscape as pristine, pure, and unspoiled. And as the environmental historian Carolyn Merchant asserts, reflected values that equated wilderness with whiteness and after postpellum black urban migration, cities with darkness and depravity. These tropes rooted in policies of removal and segregation, she argues, led to the ideal of an American colonized Eden, a controlled managed garden from which colonized indigenous peoples, immigrants and peoples of color were systematically excluded and which led to patterns of toxic waste dumping in communities of color. It's against this backdrop that the Sierra Club, the United States' first non-governmental, environmentally focused organization was founded in 1892 with John Muir at its helm as one of its founding members and first elected president. 
Established initially as a mountaineering enthusiast club, its mission was to explore, enjoy, and render accessible the mountain regions of the Pacific Coast to publish authentic information concerning them and to enlist the support and cooperation of the people and government in preserving the forests and other natural features of the Sierra Nevada. From its inception, the Sierra Club's agenda was to protect Northern California's wilderness areas, which by then had been largely cleared of California's indigenous population, with the survivors of the state's genocidal policies confined, confined to small rancherias and reservations. It also dovetailed with the federal policy of forced assimilation legislation um, by, the, by the 1987 Dawes Act in the immediate post-Indian War period. Nationwide, the Indian population at record low numbers, safely contained within reservation boundaries and guarded by strictly enforced laws against hunting outside those bounds, the stage was set for a burgeoning new phase aimed at protecting what remained of the United States' wild places and animals. On the heels of the Industrial Revolution and Western expansion, and with the still-growing national infrastructure protecting, protecting the environment framed as preservation and conservation would be a matter of balancing the needs of development with wise use of land and natural resources. The first few decades of the 20th century saw the establishment of numerous non-governmental organizations and governmental agencies and laws oriented toward uh, preservation and conservation. Among them are the National Audubon Society, 1905, the Antiquities Act, 1906, National Park Service, 1916, National Parks Conservation Association, 1919, Isaac Walton League, 1922, the Wilderness Society, 1922, the Civilian Conservation Corps, 1933, the National Wildlife Federation, 1936, Defenders of the Wildlife in 1947, and the Nature Conservancy in 1951. While naturalists worked to protect lands acquired through centuries of aggressively imposed treaties and a variety of other legally sanctioned land grabs, tribes struggled to hold on to what remained of their land bases and cultures. By 1934, with the passage of the Wheeler-Howard Act, a new policy direction was ushered in, influenced by a new generation of Western-educated Indians. Also called the Indian Reorganization Act, or the Indian New Deal, the law allowed tribes to organize their own tribal governments um, patterned after the U.S. Constitution. Um, it reversed the assimilation policy and empowered newly reconstituted tri tribal governments to have greater management of their own land and mineral rights, still, however, under the close supervision of the Bureau of Indian Affairs, building capacity for economic development as the answer to intractable poverty that choked tribal communities. Um, let's see. So, um, so that gives a kind of a kind of a, a feel for what was happening at this time. And, and in the section prior to this in the book, I talk about um, about um, I think I'll read from that section. I think this is pretty good. This this really is sort of an interrogation of um, of how the United States comes to understand the concept of wilderness. Um, 
and and indigenous people and their relationship to it. If anyone were to be called the patron saint of the environmental movement, it would surely be Thoreau. Although he was not widely read in his time, the real impact of his work would manifest later, particularly as a result of his and Emerson's influence on John Muir. Both Thoreau's and Muir's views on nature and what humans' relationship to it ought to be were shaped by their experience with Indians about whom both wrote in published and unpublished manuscripts. Biographers of Thoreau and Muir tend to admire Thoreau and Muir's views on American Indians, praising them as progressive Indianists at a time of intensifying violent colonization of the continent, but also tend to downplay to the extent to which both men were influenced by popular anthropological narratives of Indian inferiority, what we today call the savage and noble savage tropes. In the process, these commentators often reinforced the patronizing, romanticized views that prevented, Indian, or prevented Americans from seeing native peoples as fully human in the first place. The overly romantic and fetishized views of Indian closeness with nature conceived, for example, as the mystical, primeval, and primal Indian um, inevitably invokes Indians as childlike and intellectually unevolved. Worse, it evades U.S. accountability for its genocidal expropriation of the continent based on the very justification of Indian inferiority and the violation of its own constitutional law about treaties being the supreme law of the land. Thoreau especially wrote extensively about American Indians. Fascinated by Indians' closeness to nature, he studied their history and cultures and later in his life befriended Penobscot's Joe Ation and Joe Police, whom he had hired as guides, documenting his adventures with them in his classic work, The Maine Woods. He clearly had a great admiration for the way um, Indians lived, and he perceived in their spirituality a mysticism that appealed to his own transcendentalist orientation. Yet inescapably woven throughout Thoreau's writings about Indians is also a romantic draw to the wildness of Indian life, the noble savagery of the Indian, who by virtue of his primitiveness is worthy of respect because, at least in part, he resists the corruption of the white man's civilization. Thoreau may have appreciated Indians more than most European Americans, but he was still a man of his times and ref reflected popular social, social Darwinist views when he wrote in 1858, who can doubt this essential and innate difference between man and man when he considers a whole race like the Indian uh, inevitably and resignedly passing away in spite of our efforts to Christianize and educate them. Individuals accept their fate and live according to it as the Indian does. Everybody notices that the Indian retains his habits wonderfully, is still the same man that the discoverers found. The fact is, the history of the white man is a history of improvement, that of the red man a history of fixed habits of stagnation. Thoreau read Samuel, Mor Samuel George Mot Morton's Crania America, which was published in 1839, and embraced Morton's theories of Indian cultural and intellectual lowliness, even as he occupied himself with absorbing all he could about Indian life, fixating on everything from the Indian physique to funeral customs. Thoreau never 
seemed never to have grasped that the New England wilderness, already so altered by European settlement in his time, had in the colonial period been a cultural landscape shaped by centuries of Indian intervention on the land, not the untouched, pristine environment he and many of his contemporaries imagined. The history of national parks shaped by ideologies of preservation and conservation at Thoreau and similar naturalists inspired has a long track record of severing, severing Indians from living on or traditional uses of their ancestral lands. Similar versions of the Yellowstone story played out in the early days of um, numerous national parks, including Glacier, Mount Rainier, Mount McKinley, now Denali, Death Valley, Grand Canyon, Mesa Verde, and many others. National park historians um, Keller and Michael Turek identify four phases the national park system ex exhibited as it gradually improved its relationship with tribes, particularly in the latter half of the 20th century. But by then, the stubborn narratives about Indian savagery and inferiority that justified their removal from parklands had cemented themselves into national, the national imagination and infiltrated the consciousness of early environmentalists. The, uh, the racist tropes are found throughout the historical literature of the late 19th and early 20th centuries and are all too familiar. Indians were lazy, stupid, and childlike, conniving beggars and treacherous liars. But ironically, they were also sometimes characterized as ignorant of their own environments, wasteful users of the land. In 1923, for, for instance, one ranger in Glacier National Park enforcing no hunting laws, which violated the treaty rights of the Blackfeet um, inside the park, commented that unless the Indians are curbed in their desire to kill everything in sight, Glacier Park will soon have no game. So, um, so this whole section ta is talking about how um, native you know, these tropes of native inferiority and savagery were used to justify um, the dispossessing them of their, their lands. This is the history of the national park movement in this country. Um, and it's not very well known. It's well documented though. Um, and, and, and part of that was about how, you know, again, how native people were thought to, to not really know how to use land. But what we know now and what Indians have always known is how they how they did use land and how they un, how they managed landscapes in very specific ways, um, especially here in California. This is very well known: um, cultural burning um, of the forests, and um, pretty much everywhere they lived um, was practiced as a way to to manage forests so that you don't have these kinds of out of control wildfires that we have that we see now and which are of course are ex exacerbated by climate change. But um, so part of this, the project of this book is to, to debunk those myths um, of Indians not knowing how to, not, not sort of manipulating their environments in ways um, that worked for humans but also worked in ways that um, perpetuated the health of those environments. So um, I think I'm going to stop there and um, open it up to a conversation if there's any thoughts, questions. Yeah. Two things real quickly. Um, I really like the philosophical basis of exploitation um, circling around capitalism. And a lot of my 
create sustainable markets or some sustainable system. Yeah. And so I'm wondering if you could review for me how I also like the idea of indigenous peoples having equitable gender relationships because they need people's locations also. So I'm wondering if private property can be examined in a way that would bring wealth to people who are trying to create new systems that would be equitable. And then the other thing I, I was just so curious about, um, how you would treat abundance data. Huh. Yeah. yeah. Um. A friend of mine is working on a book about that right now. Her name is Jacqueline Keeler. She's a native journalist, and she's got a book coming out any day now. I'm not sure when that's going to drop, but she she um, compares the Bundy story to Standing Rock. Um, so keep keep that in the back of your head. Um, the Bundy thing was was of course incredibly problematic. Um, in terms of private property, pri Private property really is the root of the problem, right? I mean, private property is at the foundation of capitalism. Um, the, the privatization of property, um, tying it to concepts of um, value, um, of economic value, um, and, and, it's, and it's what was used to continually dispossess natives of their land. It was, um, it was at the core of the assimilation process. So um, once the United States in its, in its project to dominate native people legally and politically, uh, once that became complete in Indian law through beginning with the um, 1823 decision that I talked about with, with um, the doctrine of discovery, um, that gets woven into um, the entire legal regime and um, this and different policies that enact them so that the United States government enacts through time um, are are always in some way assimilationist even even today even today when we have a, a framework that we call self-determination and sovereignty there's always a thread of assimilationism in there and um, so this assimilationism really begins in earnest in the 1880s um, with the Assimilation Act, right? It was the law. It was specifically um, called that. And, um, and at its core, it was about taking communally held lands, tribal lands, and breaking them into uh, individual plots in order to instill values of individualism, right? And, and private ownership in order to create, and, and they use this language to create a, a, an ethic of selfishness, because Indian people were famously known to be non, not selfish. They were all, they were communal, they were collectively oriented, and um, and that was a huge threat to this to the settler project. So um, so that's part of how private property gets used really against Indian country, um, and. You know, I mean, looking looking at that is the root of um, the capitalist system that we're that we're still living with. I don't I don't know personally, and there are scholars who are doing that kind of work. Um, is there such a thing as sustainable capitalism? I don't know. 
a lot of the scholars that I'm reading, especially indigenous scholars, say, you know, like this idea of green capitalism, don't, don't think so. But there are other opinions. Too. In an indigenous worldview, it's about um, it's about relationship to place. So native people, even though one of the myths in the United States is about savage savage people fighting violent wars against each other all the time, right? That's one of the things that gets that ha historically has been used to justify this violent domination of native peoples. Well, they were killing each other anyway. That's really not so true. Um, yes, there were territorial conflicts. By and large, if you look at military studies, military studies um, show that native peoples did not fight the types of wars that Europeans had been fighting against each other for centuries, right? Wars of complete uh, um, elimination. That was a European way of war um, about um, complete conquering. Um, native peoples skirmished with each other for sure, but fundamentally, uh, straight across the board with indigenous cultures, is a respect for territory, re respect for bounded space, for the way people um, live on land because they're, who they are fundamentally um, in their identities is always connected to place. Who I am as, an, as a Colville woman, uh, connected to the Sinaixt people is about how we, our relationship to a place called the Arrow Lakes, as an example. Um, it, our stories are connected to it. And so for indigenous peoples, they all, this is a common thread. Who you are, your language, your histories is all connected to these, um, to your roots that grow literally into the ground and, um, it's reflected in language, it's reflected in ceremonies, it's reflected in everything that Native people to do and who they are. Like you can't separate those things. So, um, so that I'd say that's a way of articulating this idea of bounded space and, and the respect for it. Um, I would say Europeans didn't have that. That's why you have these, you know, the willingness to leave your home places, like you leave for whatever reasons. They, they left their spaces and they came to other places and invaded. They invaded on their own continent. That was going on for centuries before they came here. Um, Weird concept to the 
Yeah, well, I mean, it's arguably, again, it's tied to Christianity and the imperative in um, Christianity to go forth and multiply and take dominion over the natural world. I mean, the Cain and Abel story is a story of justification of um, the killing of other people to take land. Yeah. Um, well, uh, from an indigenous perspective, it's about understanding that um, these that native people have political relationships to the state, and this is something that no other group in the United States can claim. Right? The tre treaty relationships created these political relationships, um, and th this is nation to nation. And um, even though it's ongoingly violated, um, there is still, even in this horribly problematic regime of federal Indian law, there, there is still um, the recognition of inherent sovereignty, of how treaties um, was ultimately a, a mutual recognition, a, a recognition of mutual sovereignty. So that's really, that does construct, so it's, it's, it's um, paradox, it's paradoxical, right? The relationship of tribes and the United States is paradoxical. Um, so there's that. So there's like the, the relationship between tribes and the states. Then there's relationships between um, what we would call environmental justice communities, right? Um, black or ethnic minority others. Um, what comes to mind is that, and it's something I've been thinking about a lot, is that um, there's, there's uh, a sort of a, a, a chasm, like a, a breakdown between these communities. There's, um, um, in, in sort of activist spaces, you, you don't see as much cross-organizing and solidarity, like for example, between the black community and the American Indian community, they're fighting for different things in, in ways. Um, Native American, black people, for example, have been fighting for equality, right? They're fighting for racial justice and equality. They want parity with white dominant society. That's what they want, e economic equality, basically, is really how it translates, translates to them. Native people, it's not the same thing. Native people have never fought for, for equality with 
with the dominant society. Native people are fighting, they're fighting for respect, but they're not fighting to be equal to white people. Uh, they're fighting to be treated, to be treated equally well, but not for political equality. Um, and so, so these are different kinds of languages. And, um, and, and I would also go so far as to say that um, in this country, I think that we've, as difficult with our race relationships as it is, still is, um, I think that, that collectively we have been able to uh, grapple with anti-black racism easier than we've dealt with settler colonialism, right? Settler colonialism benefits us in a lot of ways. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, that because settler colonial, I mean, we can say, oh yeah, we, the original sin, you hear this language, the original sin of slavery, right? Is, is slavery the original sin, is it really? Right, I don't think, no, because invasion happened before slavery happened, right? So, um, so, Black people fighting for economic equality on stolen lands is something that needs to be talked about, right? That's why these conversations of reparations have to be really carefully cra crafted. Yeah. I mean, that it, it's not original sin. You've got it wrong, totally. I mean, it's so fascinating how these prisons get created. I mean, Just could I add one comment? Sure. Um, it's, it's, there's no degree to which we could expect the U.S. to, to violate treaties that they um, have, have created with other countries. Like, I was, I've just been researching the Marianas Islands recently. Mm. That's always the golden question, right? Um, and there's no easy answer to it, right? I mean, we can only, you can only do what you feel called to do personally. Uh, so there's what, what you do on the individual level versus what we do on the, on the societal level. All right, so on the, on the societal level, we have to be willing to deconstruct these narratives, understand the histories, how did we get here? 
and shift courses and build it into policy and law. That's what I'm trying to do anyway. Um, that's why I wrote this book, because this book, it sort of changes the conversation. Um, and and it, 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 that's, at least that's my hope. That's my hope that, that in time it will do that. It's like, okay, this is how we've been thinking about it, but it's not working, so we need to have a different conversation about it. How, how do we do it? How do we talk about, incorporate the language of settler colonialism as, as the structure uh, at the, you know, at the foundation of the United States in a way that, um, well, it's about accountability, right? I mean, it's ultimately about accountability. Um, this country has not accounted for its um, intense violent history and structure. I mean, the United States is the most, one of the most violent countries in, in the planet um, to this day. And, um, but there's a, a, a profound denialism about that. I know the United States doesn't like to be criticized from outsiders. We're so exceptional. Yeah, it definitely is. Um, I think people are trying. Um, I, I don't know that we're seeing it on a on a mass scale yet, like we should. But talking about the, you know, you use the word resurgence um, of activism in American Indian communities, and to say resurgence sort of implies that activism uh, like wasn't there before, like a, a lack of, of of action. And I would I would argue that that that's really not the case. 
Um, if you look at the, the history of activism in Indian country, it really comes, it, it comes out of, you know, on the heels of the end of the Indian Wars period, Native people start, um, start organizing in the, this period of, assim of forced assimilation through the Dawes Act, they start, they, they get forced into the boarding schools, they start getting educated in white man's language, white man's uh, writing, right, and law, um, and these kinds of systems, and so they, they come out of these boarding schools, they're even going to college, so they, they're armed with these kind of weapons, like they know the weapons of the enemy, and they start using them. And so you see the beginning, kind of the beginning of organizing um, Indian rights by Native people in 1911 with the, um, this, the beginning of the Society of American Indians. And that lasts, that's all about fighting for Indian rights. And, um, and it's always about protecting land, but it's also about protecting identity and, um, and fighting against um, the horrible effects that these, po these um, policies have had, um, especially poverty. So settler colonialism really is a system of, of imposed poverty um, and starvation and um, you know death. It's a system of death for Indian people. So they organize. You know, it begins like you know early in the 20th century, and and it builds. Um, so we have a, you know changing of policy because of native activism as a direct result of their. Um, their influence on policymakers going to Washington, D.C., fighting for different legislations and laws that will, will um, um, protect their rights and protect their lands and communities. And so it, so it produces results. And the first you know, real change we see in 1934 with the Indian um, um, New Deal, the Indian Reorganization Act, um, it's a loosening of this, um, these constraints of forced assimilation. Um, and, it, and it lasts a few years, just a few years, but by the 1940s, you start to see another policy shift happening. You start seeing um, the uh, during the Truman administration, um, building through the 1950s, as politics become more, uh, post-war politics become more conservative, um, you see uh, this narrative of the Indian problem. It's the Indians are still the problem that need to be solved. And so um, they concoct this new policy framework called termination, literally termination. And, and it's about terminating their existence. Again, it's just another, it's a genocidal, policy that's designed to, to um, abdicate federal responsibility to its treaty relationship, ultimately. And so, um, so this policy, um, it's a forced assimilation policy like the policies from before. And so you see um, a, a new wave of activism and organizing in Indian country, and it's concurrent with the civil rights movement. Right in the 1950s, you see what's happening with African American communities and Martin Luther King um, organizing in the South. Um, Indians were organizing in other places too. In, in in the same while Martin Luther King was organizing in Selma, Alabama, 
um, Iroquois people were fighting against a dam project in, uh, in upstate New York. At the same time, the federal government was building the, um, the Pixlon dam system in, uh, on, the, on the Missouri River that led to the sorry state of affairs that created Standing Rock today. Um, so, um, and they were fighting against that too. So Native people have never stopped fighting. Even if people didn't, like the broader society didn't see it, it was still happening. And, um, and so by the 1960s, they were engaged in the fish wars. Um, of course, with the help of, Mar you mentioned the celebrity, you know, Marlon Brando, um, Dick Gregory, Jane Fonda were part of that. Um, and then that builds into, you know, 1968 with the Alcatraz Island takeover and the American Indian Movement. Um, and this is what leads to self-determination in 1975 as a policy. So, so any time there's been any kind of shift, positive policy shift in Indian country by the federal government, it's a direct result of Indian organizing and action. It's not because of the benevolence of white people. Right? That too, that too. It's, that comes out of Southern California, comes out of um, Morongo, they, and they're, they're gaming, they're bingo. Their bingo operation, they had to fight a Supreme Court battle to protect that. And that Supreme Court battle in the 1980s results in the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, which is about, it didn't give, it didn't um, legalize gaming. What it did was it, it recognized and regulated their already given right based on sovereignty to practice it. Um, wealth creation is not universal, I can tell you that. Um, only a very few tribes have achieved the kind of wealth that we see in Southern California, um, and especially in San Diego. Um, that's the exception to the rule. Um, of the hundreds of Indian gaming establishments across the country, very few of them produce any kind of wealth at all. So, um, you know, another thing too, when you, um, you're talking about wealth and, um, you know, relationships to land and, and capitalism in a fossil fuel economy, you know, in the 1990s we see, it was, even not, it was not even that far long ago, it was in the 2000s we see um, the boom of the exploitation of the Bakken oil fields, right, in, in the Dakotas, North Dakota, particularly um, massive discovery of oil under the grounds of um, Fort Berthold Reservation. Um, Southern Ute has a lot of fossil fuel resources and um, they have developed, in order to escape this poverty, this intense poverty that settler colonialism imposes, um, you know, aided by federal policy, you know, people who are happy to see exploitation of fossil fuel resources, um, no matter who's doing it, right, Indians or whoever, um, um, they, they um, enable it. And so this has led to problems. So th this is something that Indian countries having to grapple with. Um, you know, how do you reconcile your worldviews about 
um, sanctity of land and place, protecting your homelands with the, um, the inevitably um, toxifying effects of fossil fuel development. And they're having a hard time. You know, it's, it's contributed to the problem we've been hearing a lot about missing and murdered indigenous women, right? That's a thing now, right? We, Indian country's known it for a long time, but now the mainstream media has picked up on it. Um, we're finally seeing some action in Congress about it. Um, but it's uh, exacerbated by the fossil fuel industry in some places, like Fort Berthold with the man camps. And the same thing is true in um, Canada. Yeah, but they're on, they were on it earlier. They were, at least started the studies earlier than, um, than what happened now. They, they knew, they were willing to at least talk about it. And I know it's partly because of their truth and reconciliation process. Land acknowledgement. Yeah. Yeah, it's not law. It's not written into law, but it's become protocol. It's so lovely. It's lovely, but it's, um, you know, the danger of it is that it's um, sort of shallow. And it's, it, it, and it's been criticized that way. Um, it's nice that Trudeau, you know, will do a land acknowledgement and, you know, he's got this pro Indian kind of um, uh, on the surface agenda, but at the same time he's pushing pipelines, he's violating um, laws that protect in indigenous people, and no different than Harper before him. So, um, so yeah. Yeah, yeah, uh, I'm not, not gonna deny that. It's, you know, we can have um, conversations about this, but it's never enough and it's never, yeah, it's not action. Any other thoughts? We're trying to be mindful of the time. Christina. No, go. Yeah, you know, I didn't really, in this study, I didn't really look at that. Um, I mean, that, that would be a pretty, probably specific kind of area of focus. And I mean, you probably would know as well as I do about the literature or lack of around that. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't think I can really speak to that. 
Christina is a friend of mine. We're colleagues um, in grad school. That's how we know each other. And she read, she was generously read chapter drafts of this book. So she gets, she gets a shout out in the acknowledgments. Yeah, well, I, you know, we hope so. I mean, these are cru crucial conversations. I mean, the ship's going down, right? And we're all going down with it unless we fight really hard. The one, one place we'll all be equal is in the Yeah, pretty much. I mean, we can't, we can't afford not to fight together exactly. anymore. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.